hearing about the book idea. Yeah. They're, they're great, man. Really great, though. It'll be a book of the film. They can have it out almost simultaneously, the book of the film and the book of the... and all that, you know. The package is great. Good. Yeah. On slides. Yeah. And uh, I'll talk to John Kosh on Monday, cos I think he'd be a nice guy to design it. Welcome this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Uh, joining us this week for our ongoing look at Get Back, one of our two most frequent guests, Darren Murphy. Hey, Darren. Greetings. Seasons greetings. Seasons greetings. Welcome. Grated seasonings. Although when they hear this, it will be after New Year's, so we can't make your Boxing Day joke, but that's okay. Oh, great. Did that mean we have to start over? <laughs> no, 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 no. We... <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. Okay, so let's see. Where did we leave off last week when we threw Lonnie and Susan to the curb? <laughs> well, I think the way it ended up, Paul called the session on the reasoning that he was not feeling good. The Hong Kong flu. And you'll notice as we start this day, he still has a red nose, and I think he's kind of unwell. We, we are now rejoining our story on day 15. This is the Friday, January the... 24th 1969 right now am i correct that by this time they decided to scrap the normal schedule and actually work through the weekend because they were pressed for time there was still some question as to whether they were going to work on the sunday or not but the it's during this day that they absolutely said yeah we're going to come in on the sunday cool i wonder how they got around the union regulations (laughs) they're the owners and they can do anything they want. I guess yeah. the camera guys were freelancing by that time. Well, I noticed uh, the only person I saw was Michael Lindsay Hogg up on scaffolding. I don't know where the other guys were. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first shots we get there is a shot on the ground. Maybe it has something to do with what we're talking about. And John comments. I'm trying to doubt the marmalade today. Very good. And see what happens. They're going to concentrate on our legs and toast today. I love the glory shot of the toast. (laughs) And Yoko's going to have it without marmalade. The things that we get access to. (laughs) It's true. God bless Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, we have to thank Michael Lindsay Hogg for getting all this down. I can hear him instructing his camera. All right, right, I want you to zoom in on the toast. (laughs) I want you to get really close on the toast because without that, we don't have a movie, guys. There's not going to be a show. 
It's not going to be a TV show. It's going to be all about toast. We've had other toast shots, so there could be more coming. Not only are people buying copies of John Lennon shirts, I saw copies of those tea mugs advertised today. <laughs> Again, taken from the designs that the Beatles were using in Apple Studios. Wow. You saw that today? On the internet. I'm thinking about marketing toast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of toast that Lennon liked. The exact kind. Billy is doing what he was actually in London for. He's off doing a TV special with Lulu. Right. I thought it was interesting at that point that George is questioning if Get Back is going to be the single at that point. And Paul's reaction is that he's still in rehearsal mode. He's not even done with his part on Don't Let Me Down. That's right. Yeah, John kind of ribs him on that. I don't know, you know, honestly, I'm just sort of still rehearsing. Yeah. And if we hit one, great. The thing is, this is the first song we really sort of got into that we dig. But, you know, there's a... There's I dig a Don't Let Me Down and I dig a pony. Personally speaking. Well, yeah. I mean, but I still haven't done the Don't Let Me Down satisfactorily for myself. Oh, yeah. Well, we're all great on it, so just get yourself together. <laughs> Interesting that the little bit of power play between those two. John's like, I'm up on Dig a Pony and Don't Let Me Down. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's up with you? You know. (laughs) Oh, another part is when John basically tells George. Did you tell Paul we've got his contract? We've got him off capital. Just like that. George will produce him. Was Paul not included in on that before now? (laughs) No, I don't know. So what is the order? We know that Billy was on VJ for a while, so I guess he was on Capitol for a while after that? Well, he's got some early albums, but I don't know what label they're no. But the early 60s albums were on VJ. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. There were boxes of records that were being shipped, which probably had Billy's album and had introducing it in the same crate. Hmm. Wow. Who knew? It was interesting how they sort of went off on all this talk of of how to expand the Beatles, how to just get everyone in the Beatles. Yes. Right. Were those guys so sick of themselves? Let's just get everybody in. Right. Like Bob Dylan, Dylan is going to join the Beatles. And even, even George is like, it's like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, isn't it? You know, let's let's have them all. <laughs> but they, Paul closes it down with you know, it's tough enough with four. Can you imagine being in an ensemble band. Dylan to join the Beatles. Yeah. I would as well. You know, and we get, get them all in it. Traveling Wilburys is is one thing. Any one of those could walk away from it at any time. But wow, can only imagine what it would take to be in that kind of super band then. The legend was always that, oh, John was aiming to find a way to get Yoko into the Beatles, and this was his idea. That doesn't sound like it from their discussions here. Yeah, I, I think that would have been an enormously unpopular idea to begin with. Yeah, I can't even imagine that that would be taken seriously by anybody, even John. But the one topic that they did discuss that actually did come to fruition was the book idea, the Get Back book, all of the pictures, the Ethan Russell photographs. Right. Now, I'm not sure from the discussions they have there, were they talking about a separate book at that point in time? Or do you think they'd already had this deluxe edition idea? Well, yeah, they were talking about the movie and then the book about the movie. I don't know if this was the book that they had planned to release in a box set with the album, but it was definitely something because by this time it was going to be a film. And so as a companion piece to the film, they would just give everybody a book 
because they had several photographers and there was Ethan Russell and then there was Linda. Right. Ethan, who bore a striking resemblance to Julian Lennon. (laughs) Ethan himself, I I heard an interview with him on Fresh Air and he was sort of joking about being a Lennon clone uh, (laughs) at that point in time. You know, there weren't too many guys walking around with long reddish brown hair and granny glasses. Right. You have two of them in the same room together, both working was um, kind of interesting. A year later, the first time John would see the final print of Let It Be was in San Francisco uh, with Jan Winter. And it's like, my thought was, did nobody recognize that this is John Lennon going in to see Let It Be? Yeah, well, you know, who knows? No one's expecting to see John Lennon walking around in overalls and and slightly short hair. (laughs) Who knew? Yeah, and you know the society we have now, where everything is instantaneous, and if you show up at a premiere, then your picture and everything is splashed all over the place. Back then, it was not that way. Maybe they picked a Monday matinee or something. There you go. So okay, then they actually start in on playing. The first thing they do, John brings up jealous guy or on the road to Marrakesh at this point. Yeah, that was an interesting change that he went from Rishikesh to Marrakesh and. I also noticed he changed the lyric in that when it was Rishikesh, it was the dream I had was true. And then Marrakesh is the dream I had was you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was evolving the lyrics at that point. Yeah, Marrakesh just sang better than Rishikesh. And that was always top priority for those guys. Yeah, right. And so what was the problem Glenn had with the Hoffner? Was was it just not giving him the sound he wanted? I think it was just a little bit sloppy. You know, those Hoffners, the intonation on those were never perfect. And Glenn was used to guys that were playing with jazz basses and Rick basses and, you know, anything but Hoffner. So he was trying to just get a little bit more sonic integrity onto the track. And unfortunately, the the Rick just wasn't cooperating. There was something that was up with the nut or he had also changed strings, too. I don't quite get this. So he'd obviously been playing this bass for three years. And what he says is that the strings were slipping out of the nut, that that it was a right handed nut. Had it always been that way? No, he had no problem playing it out of the factory. Uh, And it came with flat wound strings probably nickel flat wound strings or whatever it was that rickenbacker was putting on their bases so it left the factory in great condition but at some point the nut could have gotten damaged but paul also switched to a different type of string that was a little bit bigger and bulkier and maybe it just wasn't sitting in the nut the way it should have been which would make it pop out and at that point there was nothing they could have done because they probably didn't have another set of rickenbacker bass strings <laughs> probably not and one of my favorite lines paul looks down see i just don't know what these what dopes do actually <laughs> and neither do i i especially on a bass i don't know i don't know that might be a demonstration of, of how it was working there because you know the impression was that it was glenn Johns, who was having a problem with the sound, but it was George Martin who came out and messed with it and said, you know, need more bass. I'm insisting, Darren, that George Martin actually produced this album. <laughs> Either that or he, he was Glenn's Aaron boy. By that time. <laughs> I'm guessing not. But the big question that a lot of us have is where was the Fender jazz bass? Reportedly, it was available for the White Album. Why was it not available for... The get back sessions. Mal could tell us all. That'll come out in 2023. 
Yep. The other thing is we know that Paul would then take the Rickenbacker and not only have it fixed, he would have it refinished. We see him on the 31st and it's in its wing state at that point. That's right. It shows up. Speaking of guitars, George's Rocky Stratocaster evolves during this documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. The painting change. I think he ended up spending a sleepless night writing Old Brown Shoe and probably got inspired to do some painting while he was up. I'm writing a B-side, and you know what? That could use a little extra paint. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the 70s, that's his preferred slide guitar. That's right. So. And that'll cover more extensively in the next episode. <laughs> Join us for guitars. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the land of smokers, nose pickers, and nail biters. <laughs> so, so then John goes into Stand By Me. We we heard Paul doing a little version of it. Now John does a little version of it. That's nice. Now, was this before Her Majesty? When I heard Stevie Wonder, I don't know what his backing would be, but then you'd sing it looser. But I can't. Two of us riding nowhere. Maybe it's just soft. Two of us riding nowhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah. they go from that in, into two of us. Right. And, and that's when they discuss the whole no bass philosophy. Because Paul's like, you know, I can come back to the base after we get it all set. And, and cheat, 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 cheat. And John goes, well, that's <laughs> it. I'm just cheating. That's right. They all seem to be a, a bit of a loss without Billy Preston's. He had such an impact on them for a day or two. And all of a sudden he's off on an errand and they're like, well, now what? Oh, it's us again. <laughs> Let's figure out how to do this. They're not where they were at Twickenham for sure. Not at all. I got a chuckle out of the fact that when John is playing the guitar part, he's playing on the one end. And it reminds him of the piano part of Obladi Obada. And so he's mm -hmm. playing that and goes, Desmond has a barrel, you know. But if you listen to the, the Beatles records previously, that was always kind of a thing of John's. He always liked to play on the up. I don't know if it was a ska influence or not. Right. But on A Day in the Life, he's playing on the and. That's the accented note. It's always sort of on the up. And I think it's also on Across the Universe as well. And it just kind of became a thing. Yeah, and yeah you're right. It was a, one of those little defining artist strokes, if you will. Yeah. Well, they go, we're going home. And they both do it at the same time. And Lennon gives this look like impressive. <laughs> and John's pretty proud of himself because, you know, it, he came up with the idea to make two of us acoustic or at least to, to bring it down. Right. You know, and he actually at that point found a bit of courage to really confront Paul on his arrangements. And it's like, we can make this better. Although he does make that that weird comment about, let's do it like Stevie Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> it sends it in a really cool direction. And Paul's very receptive to it. And it works. Right. And so in, in regards to the show, Paul is like, oh, gee, it's great. We're like telling a story now, you know. It's like, uh, after Get Back, we're on our way home. Yeah. So it's a story. And there's another one. Don't let me down. Oh, darling. I'll never let you down. Yeah, it's like you and me are lovers. Yeah. We just have to camp it up for those two. Paul seems very proud of himself there. 
John's like, it's like you and I are lovers. <laughs> <laughs> he was always one for a concept album, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Somebody wrote that Two of Us was actually a, a love song between John and Paul, which is rubbish. You know, Paul wrote that about going off on drives with Linda. Well, you know, Darren, you can start a song with an intent, but it, it'll take you where it wants to go for the most part. And so I think the bridge, you know, you and I have memories longer than the road that stretches out ahead is not about Linda. Word. But, but there are parts in the song that certainly could be. And John and Paul both enjoyed a little bit of camp. <laughs> right. That's true. You know, what's funny is that line about you know, Sunday driving, not arriving. I had always was curious about that line because George, later in the Beatles anthology, he talks about, and this is pretty far-fetched, but he's talking about the Philippines and how they didn't show up at the palace. And George said, we turned on the television and watched ourselves not arriving <laughs> in, at the palace. <laughs> and, so it right. often makes me wonder, what if they, did they make that crack back then and then Paul remembered it and put it in a song? Who you know, right. Especially after all that Jimmy Nickel talk earlier in the film. This is true. That's one of the wonderful things that Peter Jackson shows us is that those guys are constantly in touch with their past. However much they want to try to abandon it and, and evolve, they still keep going back to all those old fab references. It's true. You know, I, I, what I'm most impressed about this whole thing is that this is a band who hadn't played together live in three years. You know, they'd done recordings, but they didn't play live. And then it's like, okay, so we're going to get together. We're going to write and arrange these songs and we're going to play them in front of people after three years that's pretty impressive or daring the, mm -hmm. despite the slipping schedule it's amazing that they really kind of figured out how long it would take them to get in shape to go out there and play live i mean you know the month is just about right and george says it too okay after rehearsing and playing every day my fingers feel better than they have in a long time yeah i think that is a big difference in how the record sounds George really, really shines on this whole album. I was listening to One After 909 the other day, and, and his guitar seems to be a lot hotter in the mix than it has been previously. And it's just so good. Yeah, It is so solid and so bold and adventurous. You could tell he's having a reluctantly good time. Well, I mean, especially when you consider Sense Revolver, he'd really been trying to learn to become a sitar player for two years, and he only played the guitar when he had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he also references the, the difference in styles bringing up Clapton's name and how he can just sort of effortlessly riff over a tune. And George saying, I can't do that. And I just mm -hmm. come up with little bits and pieces to put in there. But in the course of this four weeks, the stuff he comes up with is just amazing. I think every musician is always in need of inspiration in order to keep going. And, you know, George in his younger years had had so much guidance from the likes of Les Paul and, you know, Carl Perkins and Chet Atkins and Buddy Holly. And you wonder if he had kind of had a, a lack of inspiration for a while until Clapton showed up 
And he started spending a lot of FaceTime with Clapton and getting inspired by his playing. And it just seemed to light some fire under him. Yeah. George's attitude toward the group has completely turned around. It sounds lovely, though. Yeah, George. <laughs> and then John wants to release that as a single, too. It's like, Shaki, put the violins on, let's go. Release it in Italy only. Let's just make single, different single for every country. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, well, you know, he wanted to put out his records as newspapers, very much of the moment. So I just see he's going to put out a different newspaper in every country every week. <laughs> and I found it interesting that he's talking to Michael Lindsay Hogg about, oh, you know, you we should have some days where you just go into our bedrooms and follow us out, particularly in light of the Imagine film a couple years later when, well... They do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, don't yeah. throw away your good ideas. <laughs> then they go on to Polythene Pam. And John for, has forgotten how it goes. Steve Polythene Pam. Not the melody, but the recording is off for a bit. But it, they go through a bunch of songs right through this. Now, what about the Hawaiian? No, it's not like that. So I might have had a little stand. Yeah. See, one goes into the amplifier, the other goes to the pump pedal. The Majesty's a pretty nice girl. Someday I'm gonna make a mind. Yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mind. They bring out that Hawaiian slide that John's gonna play, and it's like Mal has no idea how to hook this thing up. Get some wires, man. I love just that little smidgen of Paul playing Her Majesty. I'm glad that made it into the cut because they did cut to Paul and I got to see his uh, fret positions on that. (laughs) So, you know, if I ever break it out, uh, I can play it with much more confidence. (laughs) Look for that soon. (laughs) And Teddy Boy, which is the one we all know for the bootlegs. Um, That was the only song that they did this entire day that was actually released in some form. Right. Otherwise, the only thing that was officially released was Lennon's little quip at the end of uh, version one of Dig It, which they did right after Fancy Me Chances and yep. Maggie May. The little heart, the angels come bit. Where Peter Jackson once again does the unforgivable sin of cutting Dennis out of the photo. The John Paul George and Dennis photo. Dennis? The fellow with the glasses holding the beer on the other side. Okay, uh, in the old pictures. I in, the old, in, in, the, okay. in the, I guess, 58 photo. That was also the first time we got to see the other color photo from that, where Paul <laughs> sort of peeking out, which is now in uh, Mike's Genesis book. I'm just waiting for Fancy Me Chances if we're going back to 57. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike McGear talks about those photos. Um, you know, He's got a book out now. One of those high dollar Genesis books. Yes, he was talking to Paul Myers uh, briefly on his podcast, and Paul had asked him about the redness in John's cheeks, and that it was alluding to the fact exactly how drunk was John <laughs> when those pictures were taken. While they're playing this, you variously get George Martin and Billy Preston just sort of standing around the piano, watching kind of slack-jawed. I don't know wh- whether it's in awe or whether it's, you know, 
okay, come on, guys. We need to get back to doing something. I felt sorry for George Martin during this whole period because he appears to have been kneecapped. He's not in the position of authority that you would see him in on, on earlier records. He's kind of there as an advisor, but anything that he would offer is just like, well, you guys can take it or leave it. What ones haven't you done yet? A little thing that goes something like this. Well, it's a one for a month. Two for the show. Need to get ready now. Go, get, go, and don't you stab them up and lose weight. There's cuts to George Martin, who's kind of looking on like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's not what I meant. But. So I agree. He kind of kneecapped. He, you know, he's not in control. But those guys are curious about what's happening in his world because he is a freelance guy by this time. He, he left EMI. He was working for the Beatles on a strictly contract basis, but he had just put AIR together. Right. In fact, one of the last things that they ask him about at the end of the day is how his studio is coming along. Well, he left EMI, what, just after Rubber Soul? 65. And then there was no real Air Studios at that point, but it was just sort of a collective... And he rented himself back to EMI for the Beatles session. Yeah, for a while he did that. And then, you know, I guess it was late 68, early 69 was when he actually had started getting the facilities together and, and getting the building together. How's your studio and business and everything going? Fine, thank you, George. Uh, I think the band in the place I originally planned. Hasn't gone sour on you then? You mean your apple hasn't gone rotten? That's not it's disintegrated sour. like ours. Check it. Of course, I wasn't. Still working so well together. You're looking at each other, you're seeing each other, you're... That's a great discussion that ends the day, you know. So they were well aware of what situation Apple was in at that point. Yeah. But this is right around the time that Lennon gave an interview. The will be broken six months interview. Right. That Alan Klein is going to read and move on. So this could be right around that time. And Ringo has a new camera. He, he has a brand new Sony camera. He's very proud of the brand. <laughs> and they have film of him showing off his new toy. And of course, Ringo had been playing around with film cameras, certainly since Magical Mystery Tour, really since they'd been to Japan in 66. Since a hard day's night. Although it'll be John who suggests that his movies be credited to John Leonard Productions. They say, okay, we're going to work through the weekend. They come in on the Saturday. This is day 16, the 25th of January. They start with a little bit of Dara Dune, the song that we're all now familiar with, thanks to Anthology. Mm-hmm. Right. Which that recording is actually from the Anthology. Yep. From the little picnic out, in, and um, I guess it was at George's by then. And then we get a little bit of the Bombay uh, Within You Without You demo. Right. Mm -hmm. That was very cool to watch. Now, what are they talking about? I mean, they had all taken a significant amount of movie footage of their time in India. And Paul is talking about he gathered together all this stuff and he he had watched unedit. So somebody had, had put together an edit of it. But what exactly is this? I mean, is it, is it just some collection of the footage or... I, I'm not sure how it came up on this morning. I'm not sure either. I could only imagine that at some point someone was planning a documentary that was just never finished. But it was definitely a, a significant moment in history because you had 
all of those people from these high positions that had all converged onto Rishikesh and to not documented that somehow would have been a shame. I agree, but I don't think that it was in any quality to be any more than a home movie, maybe something to share amongst friends, but it's not showable. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way that Peter Jackson illustrates what they're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Especially when he talks about those two monkeys. And the next scene is just this monkey who comes up and humps this other monkey. (laughs) 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 And then they just jump off. And he just starts sort of picking each other. It's great stuff. And it's like, well, yep. <laughs> so at the start of that, uh, you know, he talks about you got Sin and you've got Jane and you've got Patty. And then the various other people just standing there up against the sky. The opening is great. It's just incredible. It opens with Sin and Patty, Jane, you know, and then it goes through, it goes through all sorts of changes and stuff. And it's all the people. With her, Jeffrey, uh, the little American girl. You know, it's all of them, and, and they're just all the same shot, you know, against the sky. And then changes for someone else. And it's a great opening, you know, it's like the cast for yeah. this evening. It's, <laughs> and then, but then it goes, then there's a big sort of white flare out thing, because it's a change of real. But it's great, though. It really works, and like, then the soundtrack should start. And I like, and there was that little American girl. <laughs> it, it's you know, which one? <laughs> after it all, you know, uh, George asked the direct question: "Do you regret going there?" He has no humor for the mocking of the experience. George, George, yeah. But just to just to, this you shot, regret long shot of having you having No, no, oh no, no, no. I, I just think what we did there. We, uh, I don't regret anything ever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> They continue with that, and John comments that, oh, you know, you, I've got a couple of reels you may want. And Peter Jackson gets a little bit funny, you know, because John says, but you got to go John Lennon Productions or buy John Lennon or John Lennon's reel every time you show any of this footage. And, well, Peter does that in different fonts and different very 60s flowy lettering. Yeah, I think John would have got a kick out of that. I don't know John, but I imagine he would have got a kick out of that. <laughs> A striking moment for me was that George had kind of pointed out the irony of this individual discovery mission that they were on in Rishikesh, because Paul's whole point was that they had set aside so much of their own personalities in order to fit in in this community. And, you know, George had talked about, well, it was was all about individual discovering ourselves and just and finding out who we really are but if we were really who we really are none of us would be here very strange and that seemed to underscore the whole beginnings of the fragmentation of the group well and the irony of paul is saying oh well well we're up there in this lovely place on the hill i kind of wanted to go down to where the actual people were and george dismissed that and looking at that view, didn't you ever really sort of feel like going out in it? Well, we were out in it, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, a bit in the villages and stuff. Like, the bit that everyone else, 95% of them were doing around there, except for the converts on the hill. You know, it's incredible stuff, you know. Considering where he'd be with Bangladesh in just a few years, it's like, that's interesting. Mm. So it was Paul that wanted to look through the bent back tulips to see how the other half lived. Yeah, exactly. Well, 
But if your goal was to go and achieve some sort of bliss, going through the neighborhood is not going to get you there. But it's very much in Paul's personality. You know, Paul's always the one who wants to go and see what the real people are like. Right. And he's still like that. You know, when he goes out on these world tours, he and James apparently like to go and get on bicycles and ride around. There, there's a story of the last time he was here in town that apparently he just rode up and down Westheimer with James. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he could be spotted here in Austin jogging along the Ladyburg Lake Trail. There's a, a sort of boardwalk that's a very popular jogging spot. And it seems like if it's possible... For someone of that level of fame to actually be down among them and spend some day connect and living anonymously among the masses, why not? Well, he's very proud of the fact that he still occasionally get on a train or get on a bus or get on the jitney when he's up in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Mick Jagger was into that too. You know, he, he he was very proud to be able to you know hang out at the Broken Spoke in Austin. And I think there's some other places of him in other towns who just find a local bar or a local pub and do a quick little selfie there. And public has a good time with it. Locals have something fun to talk about and on to the next town. And then the button on that showing all of the India footage is John talking about when he went up in the helicopter. It's like, oh yeah, you know, Maharishi said the The word is (laughs) Bargira. And it's like, you know, I wonder if that's actually what the Maharishi told him. <laughs> you know, the, the, is John thinking that no one would ever hear this trying to piss off all the TMers? Right. <laughs> George was way more into it and was a true believer. And so I think he, there are times in this conversation where he's not really. He's uncomfortable, yes. Yeah, that's it. He doesn't, he doesn't enjoy it being mocked. You know, tell me, old master. And, the whole thing. He just thinks it ought to be taken a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. And yes, and that was healthy because without George being there to sort of keep guys like John on a focused path, John had written what would become Sexy Sadie. He had had all this Maharishi stuff in there. And George is like, you can't do that. Come on. It's got to be something else. So it became Sexy Sadie because of George, because of George's pragmatism. Well, I mean, John didn't listen to Ringo years later with How Do You Sleep? It's like, (laughs) aren't you going just a little bit too far, John? No, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess he he wasn't bound by any sort of group loyalty at that point. (laughs) This is true. Yeah, we we, we really get the first sighting of Rocky during these sessions then. George pulls it out. Okay. So at some point, they end up working on For You Blue. So uh, that means it's oh, it's D open though. See, the best one to play on is the G fret. Then you go. Huh. Otherwise, it's you know. Oh, you got to. Oh, maybe that'll do. Means you're up high all the time. I should really tune it so it's that D there. Or if you left it at. See, I'm playing D here on this fifth fret, that D, because I want to do it as an A shape. Is that what they decided that they were going to focus on? 
Bye Bye Love and Two of Us before that. And a beautiful version of Bye Bye Love. Yeah, it was really cool. There's several songs through this. It's like, man, that could have been that other album they talked about at the time, you know, of, of older songs. Oh, yeah, that's right. Two of us, they worked on harmonies and vocals mainly. They ended up talking with Glenn about recording schedules. And then For You Blue comes up. Right. That's, what, that's when Martin treats the piano with newspaper. The piano, it'd be nice to make the piano like, you know, those bad pianos. Yes. Is it? Glenn, how could we make the piano like on those very bad old honky-tonks rather than like a blues or a grand? What does the paper do for the piano? Just make it tinnier? Yeah, it's tinnier. It's more like, yeah, honky-tonk. It's like a blues note, in short. The main thing with this, in my head, it's like influenced by those old fellas or, you know, where nothing was professional at all. So it's really just like a one-take wonder, but we may have a four-take wonder. I think Mal was busy looking for those cables. <laughs> right, right. I also noticed that John has a great enthusiasm for this song. He wants to get it going and just, uh, it's great. And oh my gosh, at one point admonishes the people in the room to be quiet when he's playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He has to do that a couple of times. You know, it's the get back version. You hear him in the background going quiet, please. Quiet, please. <laughs> right. But it shows though, his enthusiasm because he's playing his slide playing, considering he had never really attempted something like that on a record, but it's masterful. Yeah. He ends up playing slide and the bass. On that, there's a couple of little doom, 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 and that's all happening on that one guitar. I loved the fact that the cameras really got us in close to see what he was doing because there was no picks there. There was no finger picks. There was no plectrum of any sort. It was John just going for it. Yeah. Um, and he and recognized it too. He said several times, you know, this is it. I'm at my peak right now. <laughs> and they give you a little bit of insight into how the sounds evolved as well because they've started uh, talking about uh, about the piano how can we turn this really top of the line bluthner piano into a honky tonk thing and somebody comes up with the idea of well let's just throw some newspaper over the strings and there it is mystery solved how did they get the sound that's how they got it well, and George's description of the sound he wanted, that's pretty amazing, you know, that he felt that he wanted the sound to be influenced by, quote, those old fellas where nothing was professional at all. Yeah. Old, you know, old. Every, everything was a one-take wonder. And then he pauses. Well, maybe for us it'll be a four-take wonder. <laughs> yeah, it's all those old, old blues records he's talking about. Well, back to Lightning Hopkins. And this was, this particular take of For You Blue, was the, the take that ended up being released as a B-side and as an album track, but it was also the only song that they did this entire day that actually saw the light of day. The full song, yes. But, I mean, they're moving in that direction. It's really amazing. It's like they always said, once the red light was on, they knew what they were doing and got there as quick as they could. Yeah, uh, and even then, it, it, it wasn't enough. The final version of For You Blue, uh, I think... George overdubbed his entire lead vocal. Yeah, that's where all those comments come in. Yep. During that, we see Alan Parsons running the tapes. That's right. And that's cool. And John goes, beep, 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 beep. It's like, oh, well, I guess they heard the Nagra beeps as well. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be what he's referring to. 
<laughs> I guess so. But John did a lot of this beep beep stuff. That just seemed to be a thing of his. And they were working on Hey Jude, you know, just a few months earlier. That's right. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> what I wonder is, was it John that came up with beep beep for Drive My Car? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. The George goes on and saying that uh, the sound is really good down there, uh, which then leads to them making even more Apple electronics and Magic Alex cracks. Well, you know, I think it's kind of funny. I think uh, <laughs> I think we're getting a good sound in Apple Studio. Yeah, that's it. Dan, do you see that? It's not, it's not nothing else but Apple. We're taking out that. Bloody good studio, that one. Apple, Apple Produced by Apple. Engineered by Apple. Hey, as Mary's called this. Okay, can you play us the other one? Oh, I'll just... Take this out for the first one and just bring it on after I love you. Yeah, you just and then leave it in there. Yeah, well, I'm full of ideas like that. Some famous sort of yeah. literary beetle, you know. Well, this is one of Alex and Apple Electronics that brought out. And there isn't another one in the world. It's, it's a mixer. It's yeah. a 20 channel mixer. It's a or a radar screen or a tail of an aeroplane. Oh, just as uncomfortable as and then Martin kind of jokes with Glenn because, you know, that's where the sound comes from. The engineers have helped create this. And he's like, well, it's, it's an Apple thing. And then even Paul joins in. Yes, Apple this and Apple that. It's kind of funny to me. I think they had to take some ownership of the studio because they did want to build the best studio that they could build. And do you think that Alex built a good studio? See, that's what I'm unsure of, because I don't know exactly how much Alex had to do with the design of that entire room. Uh, it seems like he, he would have had to have brought in some consultants, some acoustical consultants that could have given him guidance on how to build the room itself. The one thing that we know Alex was good at was actually reading and interpreting fairly high-end technical jargon you know he, he would know what's on the cutting edge he wouldn't know how to make it real but he would know what they were talking about and one of the things was the design of the glass between the booth and the studio portions it's like the angle glass that he used would become commonplace but at that point it wasn't the standard they but, didn't have that at abbey road at the time no apparently they just had a flat piece of glass there very interesting i still think how do you explain 16 speakers on the wall I, it's just it's baffling and then a board that someone described as looking like a, a panel from an old bomber well and Ringo actually even makes an allusion to that when they're in there with the EMI board he, he picks up some little piece of just you know mechanical fluff which was sitting around it's like oh and it's this and it's this and it's this and he's he's clearly talking about what alex would have done with it yeah the question remains did alex somehow design a good studio in a terrible control room or was somebody else in charge of that well and then there's always the question of why in the heck did the heaters work in the way they did where they couldn't record when the heaters were on they had to turn off the heaters for it to be quiet enough for them to record. The boilers were adjacent to the studio. That's what created that let it be sound. <laughs> <laughs> for a while, they had the fireplace going as well. But they yeah. couldn't do that because it was a wood-burning fireplace. And like the sound of the wood crackling and stuff would bleed into the mics. You know, 
That's true. But haven't you been amazed at the amount of activity going on when they record? George was doing something. They were recording something. And I think Mal was pouring a glass of wine not two feet from him. <laughs> I thought, well, that's weird. The space they had was a bit limited. I yeah. guess, yeah. yeah. I, I love getting to just getting an eye as to you know what kind of drinks were flowing around, and you know you, you get to know each person's little drink preference. <laughs> John was like, "Yeah, I'll have a beer." Some really decent red floating around, some really good white. <laughs> there was some sort of dark beverage that George is passing around, but I think that's going to be in the day 17 discussion. So <laughs> more to come on that. Does the uh, recipe pop up? It's some sort of mixture. So. Mm-hmm. so they move on and we get a single caption telling us that the Primrose Hill concert is no longer possible. They don't tell us why. We had a little bit of this discussion previously. According to Michael Lindsay Hogg, what had happened was that the permits had gotten denied. That's awfully fast turnaround on these permits if they filed them on Wednesday. And here here they are uh, on the Saturday. And it's like, oh, no, we can't do that. But you can tell that it's like it affects different people in different ways. I mean, Michael Lindsay Hogg is disappointed because... He has less of a movie, but Paul seems to really be devastated by it. Absolutely. Uh, because now he he doesn't have a gig. You know, that was really what he was staking all of this stuff on. He really wanted to have some sort of a dramatic conclusion to all of this, which, you know, and John understood. John said, I know what you want, Paul. You want your a day in the life. You want a way to, to end this really big. And it's not going the way you want it to go. And it's becoming, it's not your baby. It's kind of our baby. It's ours. Yeah. Paul had an original concept and it's been co-opted by the band. It has become them, which is what it should. But And it's funny. We, we spent so much time trying to figure out what all this meant when we just heard the audio on the Let It Be box. And now it makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Paul says, the guy, yeah, I don't know what I'm moaning about, you know, but we know. He's been doing all the heavy lifting and he's got nothing to show for it. And he doesn't get his way on anything. Right. He says, uh, I know majority decisions and all that. Yeah. He's like, well, it's okay. (laughs) But John's like, yeah, but that's what's bugging you, isn't it? So John sort of breaks out of that. He goes into, I lost my little girl. John singing a Paul song. I had one point before that when they discuss the film stock. 16 long to 35 is a mess. No, it's not. Generally, well, they, there's got... certain stock that blows up better. Yeah. Take it on 500. Yeah. And this will blow up all right, this film. Yeah. Did it? <laughs> what surprises me is still that how did John know about Ectochrome? Well, you know, he may have learned a little bit about film stock while he was doing How I Won the War or they Magical had... Mystery Tour for that matter. And they had done filming out at, at his house, experimental films with him and Yoko. Mm-hmm. And then we, we get a, a real film moment. The, the camera slows down. We go into slow motion. We see Michael and, and Glenn come in and whisper something in Paul's ear, and he just breaks out in this big smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the plot arc that takes <laughs> us into the third act. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. What did they say? And he's so happy. We cut to outside where they have to drag Michael Lindsay Hogg onto the roof. Now, this is not the level of the roof they played at. This is actually one level up. Yeah, I was scared for him up there. There's no guardrails of any sort. <laughs> True. 
there's one part when I guess it's uh, Michael telling Paul that the only thing is we've got to get some permission, Paul. Yes, yes, yes. So the cops are coming through us off. So I wondered whether it was there a bigger conversation behind that. Well, and then Ringo says, "What happens if they go on top of the other roof? Is there somebody else's roof? Then we can get had not only for disturbing the peace and the noise, also trespassing." Yeah, and there's also the concern about whether the roof would hold the weight of the equipment and the band. And it made me think of there had been an incident where a bunch of copper from the roof had been stolen. And I don't know if that fits in at all or not. Some copper from Apple's roof? Uh Uh-huh. Tell us more. Well, I believe it's referred to in Richard DeLello's book. The Longest Cocktail Party? Yeah. But there's more, a longer story in Apple to the Core. Wow. I I have both of those books. It's been so long since I've read them. I got to go back. Kudos to you, John. So then they go back down in the studio. We we get a bit of mean Mr. Mustard and they they decide, yeah, okay, this seems like an idea. And they're trying to figure out when they want to make this thing happen. I think the thing is we'll aim for Thursday. I think you should aim for a little earlier than Thursday because if you aim for Thursday, it's not going to be Thursday. Well, you see, we have to give them a chance to get their other cameras in. It'll be pretty quick, but it'll still give us some time to do. Uh, And then we get the little comedy bit. Ringo assembling a music stand. Oh, yeah. My note says wine and music stands. And I like the box with the flashlight right next to it. The ever-ready space ray flashlight. (laughs) A very 60s kind of thing. Right. So they go into Let It Be. Paul has a bit of a coughing fit. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Right. Mm, yes. And they mainly work on the structure of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we see Robert Fraser hanging around. That's right. And, and at that time, they don't have the intro to let it be down yet. They're still kind of almost like a temporary bookmark there. Yeah, How does it start? Okay. Yeah. Um, so just straight in at the first verse. Oh, that's a, oh, yeah. For an intro. Well, I'm find myself in times of trouble they've got that descending down 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 um so it's still kind of taking shape there right and of course we find a a little quip that eventually shows up on the beatles anthology that gives you the impression that paul just wrote the song which is not because he gets up and goes this is gonna knock you out man (laughs) this will this is gonna knock you out I think the song was, what, six months old by that point? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Is this the bit where, because the, the Nagra reels have John really going off on a parody of the song here, going, let it see, let it do. Yeah, exactly. Wobble, wobble. Is that during this moment here? Or that, is that, that, that was all in here, yeah. Well, okay. I don't think it's all there, because he, he actually does that twice. Um, he does it once out in the studio, and then there's a film of him in the control room. Uh, doing that. Yeah. So, uh, the, the GHI, GHI. Yeah. And I think the one Darren's talking about was in the control room. As they come to the end of the day, then John is really almost sort of making fun of Paul because Paul wants to quit for the day, you know? 
and Paul's the one who's been, you know, we got to get going. We got to do this. We got to do that. And it's like, <laughs> well, Paul's just like, I'm just tired. <laughs> my my uh, note says they're working on the structure of the song and apparently lots of booze. <laughs> Can we carry this on tomorrow? I feel just yes, a bit tired now. You know? No, you don't mind if we finish now. Do you? I'm just trying to get the group working. You know that every day. Yeah. Office hours. <laughs> yes, Paul, you'll have to be strict. Some discipline. It's been Paul that's been driving the discipline thing home, particularly since they've been back to Apple Studios. And here's John throwing it right back at him. Mm-hmm. They seem to go off on, on a little Christmas thing. I don't know if it's because of Let It Be or what. Come on now. Back to the drudgery. Thank you. It's you that's making it like this. It's you that's bloody making it like the this. The real meaning of Christmas. Especially like to thank you for all the birthday presents. Yeah, I would imagine it was so fresh on their on their minds. No matter what was going on in their career or their personal lives, they had that deadline wherein they had to produce a Christmas record. <laughs> yeah, this was what was the one that just came out? That would have been the '68 Christmas record. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, 1968, going on '69. Right, and that would have been Tiny Tim. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next to the last one. From from there to here, Happy New Year. Right, right. And so part two ends, you know, uh, the Beatles decide to stage their rooftop performance on Wednesday, four days from now. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, you know, if, if a record comes out, the version that's played over the credits of Love Me Do is so cool. There are so many great ideas, and it's really a shame that it wasn't in a presentable form. But it's really inventive. It would have been a great addition. Yeah, there seemed to be like some little touch of enthusiasm in the back of their heads to go back and revisit some of the songs that made their careers. But they didn't want to go and perform them in the same way that they did on stage and on the BBC. They wanted to give the audience you know, something a little bit different in, in a more contemporary context if they had stuck with that, it would have been an incredible show to watch. Yeah, for sure. Would have blown Elvis 68 out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's sacrilege, man. Come on. So we move on to part three, the, the beginning of part three of Peter Jackson's film, Day 17. This is now Sunday the 26th. Yeah. Bring the children to work day. Also, kudos that George Martin came in on a Sunday. So I think he's in charge here. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like they work the full day, though. It seems like they, they quit sometime mid-afternoon. For, that's the way it feels to me, at least. Yeah. Yeah, my notes here are very short. Very short day. It's true. In fact, my note at the top goes, it's amazing it took six months to record the White Album, and they're planning on put putting at least half that into four weeks writing from mm-hmm. scratch, you know. Yeah. Which uh, then effectively becomes three days of recording. Well, right. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Please Please Me was recorded in a day. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, and actually provide some context there because that had become their modus operandi, taking six months to record an album. And at some point, so, well, you know, why are we doing this? Why don't we, let's, t- let's do a, a 180 
and do our next album in lightning speed and do it live. There's a big dare right there. The Beatles is all about daring each other to do the next thing, to make the next move. But I mean, Rubber Soul was recorded fairly quickly, two, three weeks. And that was, again, mostly written while they were trying to record this album. They only came in with a couple songs for Rubber Soul. That's right. And they had to use a leftover from Help. Wait till I come back to your side. We'll forget the tears we cried. <laughs> the day begins with George singing Window Window, a song that we now know from the All Things Must Pass sessions. There's actually a much more savage version of John and Paul parodying it, which they either didn't have film for or Peter Jackson chose not to use. Very cool song. Yeah. Uh, Although he calls it the the silly one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as always, George and Ringo are the first to arrive. We see the writing session for Octopus's Garden. Now, what we don't get here was the uh, Isn't It a Pity, which closed out part one when George left. That was recorded this morning. Very interesting. Well, the Octopus's Garden is its debut. He's playing it to them for the first time. It's just kind of great how George comes over and is going to work with him. Mm Mm-hmm. And you love that you know, Ringo knows that the song is still in its developing stages, and he's still a little bit embarrassed about the temporary lyrics that he's put in place. You know, paradise being such a corny rhyme with it would be nice. And he kind of he's <laughs> <laughs> laughing and sort of looking around, I guess, because John kind of comes in at the same time he's delivering <laughs> that line. That's kind of- He's like, oh boy. But George Harrison is being very patient with him, as is George Martin, actually. You know, they're trying to help him. It's like, well, you know, why don't we just try and bring this background, I guess, to the G? So. Yeah, finding a way to resolve it. I don't know who actually shapes that song by the time it's recorded, but I love what it developed into. There were still too many chord changes on that middle eight that George was suggesting. And to to actually go to this one chord and stay there for a couple of bars was such a nice idea for it to blossom into. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's songwriting 101. It's just great to see the two of them working together and, and how they work together. I mean, they were such a good team. George was very compassionate. He was giving Ringo the time of day that John and Paul wouldn't <laughs> give him. <laughs> so John and Paul come in. Paul goes and gets back to Let It Be. What kind of shape is Let It Be taking at this point? It's getting there, I think. They're really talking about the end at this point. John is saying that, that they should do the gospel ending at the very end of Let It Be. There will be an answer. Heaven. Heaven. Uh, <laughs> what was it? Do that old gospel ending. <laughs> Sunday morning. The Sunday morning. Church. Church. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll all kneel you as we do that gospel ending that the Elvis did. Be. He. Yeah. He. We always going to do it. We did it just fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. The big Elvis gospel ending. Mm-hmm. That was a really, that was a really strange moment there with, <laughs> with John, you know, because it, it's hard. He's hard to read. You don't know if he's like digging into Paul or if he's just like, or if he's being helpful. I'm just I'm never sure because he kind of delivers this thing and he turns around and walks away. So Linda and Heather come into the studio and given the discussion there between Heather and John, it's like he was. Certainly in a funny, humorous mode. So he, maybe he wasn't being serious. Okay. 
You know, the, you had that discussion about, oh, we have baby kittens that were born two days ago. And then John's like, well, are you going to eat them or what? <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite moments in the whole film. <laughs> We've got some baby kittens that are only about that big. Mm, are going to eat them? No. Lots of people do, you know. I don't. Some baby kittens, they've just been born yesterday. On toast? You put pastry around them and you have cat pie. A few days they were just born, weren't they? Oh, well, you better wait a week or two before you eat them. No, I'm never going to eat them. Well, that's very good. Them. Them. One of them's beautiful, like okay. Daddy Cat. It's got a big black spot there. Well, you don't eat them if they have black spots. And the other one's like a tiger. You don't eat them if they're like tigers, are they? You don't eat any cats. They don't taste good. <laughs> Heather's little exchange is really, really charming. Really, it's almost with everybody, you know. She plays with Ringo, and <laughs> and she can play. That's the thing. She she's keeping time reasonably well. <laughs> Paul does turn around and go, no, no I mean, because he doesn't realize it's Heather. I don't think that he's telling Ringo how to play the hi hat. <laughs> <laughs> Ringo's probably like, oh my god, she's just <laughs> ripping my brushes to shreds <laughs> and all bent out of shape. <laughs> Paul, come over here and get your daughter. <laughs> well, and then she gets herself into Glenn Johns's uh, furry coat, and just the sight of of this little girl swallowed up by this big Afghan coat is priceless. Yeah, then there's the whole Yoko jam, which a few minutes later Heather imitates. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry, Yoko. <laughs> Well, and, but but John loves it, you know. Yeah, he, 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 he she starts doing, it and he turns around, and goes Yoko, and he, you know he's telling her to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, so she plays with Yoko too, as Darren says, very charming. Note that she is eventually carried out of the room over someone's shoulder. Oh, that's right, Mal. Mal carries her out. It's time to get uh, Heather out of the room. Nobody can do anything right now. Later, when they're actually having a serious discussion, if you read in the Get Back book, Heather is actually playing a game with Glenn Johns, and that is unfortunately on the mic. You can't hear everything, I guess. Mal, the AI, was not good enough to remove Heather from that discussion. <laughs> There's you know, a bunch of loose jamming, and then they record the portion that we know as Dig It in the studio. As it's described, part of this performance is on the album, Let It Be. Much longer version had been intended to be released on the Glyn Johns mix. But what I wonder is that it's all come about impromptu. Um, was this a song that John had been working on that he was actually trying to further? Or was it a, a, a moment that just came up and it's like, all right, well, this is happening. Let's go for it. Yeah, he'd had the list of names, or he had the idea of, you know, I'm going to sing a list of names and dig it. But this may have been the the most organized version, mm -hmm. shall we say. Which actually starts with Twist and Shout, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, and everybody's throwing stuff in. George is into it. Paul's into it. George Martin is into it. <laughs> He's back in control. That little shaker that he has, I don't think it ever shows up on the track. But... <laughs> That is cool, though, to see him playing that. I'll bet you Phil Spector turned it down. <laughs> and then proof that uh, things are not like the 60s anymore. Paul throwing Heather up in the air. It's like no parent would get away with that in 2021. <laughs> 
unless you're a rock star. It still happens in yeah. the rock world. Trust me. Protective services would be in there in, in a minute to, no, no, you can't throw your kids up in the air like that. Well, you notice both of us were silent there for a moment. <laughs> okay. Then they go into some more oldies. They, they, they do some blue suede shoes. They do some shake, rile, and roll. Yeah, this was, I think, the moment that I was talking about with George Martin that he asked about something, you know, playing something new, and and Lennon went into Blue Suede, and then they did Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And so they weren't going to get to work. <laughs> and then, then they they finally go off into Long and Winding Road. Right, which, uh, is, which is the album performance, I believe. Yeah, I'll, although I like Paul's comment there. Well, if you syncopate it a bit, it'll be like double syncopation. Uh, what are you trying to tell us paul (laughs) and then george comes up with a a leslie on his throat (laughs) that was a a wonderful thing to see because you know like a lot of people i grew up listening to that track and was like well how is george getting an acoustic guitar to run through a leslie i don't know if he had like a pickup on there or something but you actually see that process being rigged up in real time yeah but i still didn't get a good look at the microphone i don't know what it was it looked round and and cupped in his hand was an early version of a sure bullet he was holding it against his throat yeah yeah well it looks like about five or six more viewings on my part and ringo seems to be sleeping through all of this oh that's right But at some point, this little dark drink, it looks like a dark beer or something, but it's only in a glass that's kind of half full. Right. It's being distributed around to folks. And Paul's drinking out of it and John's drinking out of it. Does anyone know exactly what it is that George is giving to them? Beetle magic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we get a little bit of a clue earlier. Maybe it's a Twickenham. George makes this little quip. He's like, they're working on all things must pass. And and George starts singing, macrobiotic pills are arriving at the right time. (laughs) So maybe it's sort of a macrobiotic energy drink that he's trying to pass on to them. (laughs) Well, that could be. But John's still like, hey, have you got any pet pills? Can I have a couple? <laughs> no, that was that was Ringo. That was Ringo asking Mal for them several days earlier. Was but... that Ringo? Oh. It was Ringo yeah, yeah, it was Ringo oh. that was asking. I tell Mal. Him. I like... So so then they're they're discussing long and windy road arrangements there in the, the control room. And it's brought up that Paul might be considering strings on the long windy road. There wouldn't be much drumming, would there? around a bit, you know. What? It sounds a bit like a sort of dance orchestra. And that slow box trot by Rita and Thomas Williams. Rita is wearing a dark sombrero and a beard. Yeah, maybe I've got it wrong. Can you pair it Her husband is wearing a crinoline skirt which he made himself. When it's mixed as it is, I'm sure with a mix on it, it would be all right. I know what point. Yeah, but we were just uh, feeling that we could tidy it up before we, like, did the one to remix. Well, Paul, you know, Paul's thinking of having strings anyway. Paul, you're going to have strings, don't know? We were planning to do it anyway, for a couple of numbers, just to have a bit of brass and a bit of strings. Well, that's what George is saying before, that's the bit where the Ray Lutz would sing it. The long and winding road to your door. And I thought, strings and brass, shades of Phil Spector. 
<laughs> years and years later, Phil said that the plan was always to have some sort of an arrangement. And I had talked to Paul about it and he gave me the guy to talk to. But I think Paul wasn't expecting to hear like a bunch of choirs and stuff. He wanted it done in sort of a tasteful way that was more faithful to a Ray Charles sort of take right. on it, which had always been his vision. But Spectre just took it way, way over the top and went all Righteous Brothers with it. So Was this go. a Richard Houston arrangement? March and April 1970, the strings in a choir were arranged and conducted by Richard Houston. Ding, ding, ding. There's the answer. And right. the point goes to John Stone. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I was worried. It is surprising, though, that they're all was said and done. And after even after they, they came back and after the rooftop and did uh, another couple of really good takes of The Long Winding Road, they went back to that take to use. And it was so flawed. I mean, John's bass playing on it is all flawed. And they seem to be commenting themselves that the track is just sort of laying there. They're, none of them are very happy with it. Yeah, you're right. I don't know why they chose that. Glenn and I think George Martin were saying, well, if this is going to do just fine because we are going to have some other arrangements coming in. They're going to pick the song up. And maybe that was it. Maybe they just thought that that was the right tempo. Maybe it was the authentic kind of feel that they wanted. But, you know, who am I to argue with that? The song went to number one. So, Well, yeah. agreed. But the performance that last day on the 31st is pretty good. Yeah. Paul summarizes it up there. You know, it's like, well, I think it's going to need like a lot of cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of there, but we're going to have to do something with it. So nobody is really happy with it, but they used it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, Interesting. well, they, they weren't going to go back and record more on it. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After the 31st, it's like, we're done. But but as you say, the, the performance on the 31st, they seem to have been reasonably happy with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, again, that, that would become a single. So, Phil Spector had a lot to say about the take that they used for The Long and Winding Road, but he didn't really explain why they used that take. He was just commenting on why he had to put so much on it because, you know, he was saying that, you know, John couldn't play bass to begin with. John didn't like the song, so he wasn't putting much into it. You know, Paul's vocal, he was kind of mocking it. John doesn't seem to dislike Long and Winding Road from what we get here any more than the other songs that he, we know he dislikes. I mean, you know, I mean, mine, he didn't care for it all. And well, they never went back to it. And, and how would Phil Spector know he wasn't there? No, because he was just listening to what he heard on the track. What ah. he heard from John's bass playing is like, this is clearly a guy that's just not into it. And there's clam here and there's clam there. I'm going to need a lot of stuff to cover up these mistakes on this take. It's the one they want to use. So, well, here we go. I guess you, you play the hand that you're dealt. Well, I mean, that's why they use different versions on Naked. That's right. This is kind of wrapped up kind of funny because when they're in the control room, you hear exchanges between Glenn Johns and, and Heather. And it goes on, and at one point, Linda even kind of gathers her in to calm her down. And uh, so you figure that while she got hauled out of the studio to, so they could make music, she probably was driving Glenn Johns crazy. Yeah, apparently they were playing some game about Mr. and Mrs. Socks. That's why Heather <laughs> makes that comment about, oh, well, I'm supposed to marry you someday. Right. So looking at the shortness of the session, I'm sure 
as a parent <laughs> that what was going on was like, we need to go. The child has had enough and it's time for us to go. And, you know, and so the episode ends with a perfect. Well, should I book the Mike Sam singers? Yeah. Just book Mike. Just book the scaffold. <laughs> I can so identify with Heather, though, because, I mean, that's how I would have been in a studio situation, just so oh, yeah. overwhelmed with the with the revelry and with everyone's you know big, big personalities. I would have been the exact same way, probably more annoying because I'm a guy. There's no uh, accusation other than it was the way it was. I thought it was great when she mouths the words to let it be. Cute kid. Yeah, she sits down at the piano and she grabs the mic from Paul. (laughs) (laughs) And he just sort of looks at her. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, you want to sing? Go go ahead, sing. You just can't have enough respect for Peter Jackson to plow through all of that footage and to find those little moments. Yeah, and to recognize them. Exactly. And it's like, okay, yes, we need to see that. Yeah. Um, I I, want to see the original 18-hour cut. I'm sure that's been mentioned before (laughs) as well. (laughs) <laughs> what we got was we got 20 minutes on the Sunday. So, you know, it's actually not any shorter than uh, most of the other days, for what it's worth. As far as how long we were there? Amount of screen time we get in in this version of the film. Oh, oh yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, d- d- day 17 is one day that's remarkable because it doesn't seem heavy in any way. There's a bit of heaviness in day 16. I mean, the only thing that's that's slightly off is that John is almost passed out during the playback while they're listening to The Long and Winding Road. Lennon is just like down with his, you know, head practically tired, between yeah. his knees. Yeah. And, and Maureen was there. What, what, we only see a, a quick shot of her when they're listening to the playback. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Are we talking I about wonder the- who was taking care of his kids. <laughs> Are you talking about the, on the 26th? On day 17. Yes, the 26th of Sunday. <laughs> I don't have those numbers. <laughs> well, maybe she was at church. Yeah. <laughs> Drop by. Uh, I somehow don't think so. Although, how Billy let them turn, uh, let it be into a gospel number and, and sort of vaguely talk about soul uh, and playing gospel is like, he made no cracks about it. I guess it's like, well, it's their deal. I got to let them do it. <laughs> right. So, all right, that is where we were at. We've just got two more shows, and then we'll be done with Get Back for now, although I'm sure we'll be talking about this well into the future. (laughs) Right. Well, it was great to have you, Darren. Oh, man, it was great to be here, and I I was really excited to talk about these three days. This might have been my, my, uh, my favorite segment of the whole story. Uh, there's just so much revealed about their characters and about their concerns. Uh, it was just wonderful. 
Yeah. Well, and and since this was really the most solid piece of them recording that we get during this whole thing, because really sort of after this, they move into the mode of let's get doing this rooftop show. You know, recording is almost secondary to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you if you think about it, we've got almost half the album uh, over these three days produced uh, five or six masters. Yeah, I don't know if it's the next three days you're going to end up with two more number one hits. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the Beatles. Next week, Kid O'Toole joins us, and then whoever we can gather up for our big wrap up the week after when we get through the rooftop concert and sort of summarize our thoughts after all these weeks. Do we listen to the concert and scream? <laughs> uh, no, we, uh, you need to go out in the middle of the street and let cars pass on either side of you. I just don't see it makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me too. All right. <laughs> so, so we'll be back next week. Thank you, Darren. Thank you Thank guys. You, it's great to see you. Thanks a lot. Bye, everybody. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco. California. Boxing Day is the time of year for two of us.
I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.